Hi Central, my name is Peter and I get to serve on staff as a church planting resident. And we're going through a sermon series called uh, the Being the Church as we go through the book of Acts this year. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're reading about the early church to show us and remind us what it really means to be the church for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We'll be going through a pretty lengthy passage this morning uh, from chapters 8 and 9, but we'll start by reading verse 13 and verse 15 from chapter 9 as we hear about the Apostle Paul's grace story. This is God's holy and infallible word. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Every single one of us is writing a story with our lives. And our stories have many ups and downs, twists and turns. It's filled with joyous moments of celebration as well as dark nights of suffering. Wherever you might be in your story, if you're a follower of Jesus, at some point in your story, there was a gospel change. It was a powerful moment or a gradual process, but this change is the most precious change that can happen to anyone as they go through their story. The Bible describes it as going from lost to being found, from spiritual blindness to being able to spiritually see, to spiritual death to being spiritually alive. Many call this uh, Christian conversion. And this change makes all the difference in the world and is one of the most important parts of your story as a believer because without it, you can't be a part of the body of Christ. Our passage this morning tells us about this change and it happens as we look at the most significant grace story in the book of Acts. It's a grace story of the apostle Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul his Roman name, and we'll go by Paul since that's what everyone knows him by. And what we're going to see from Paul's grace story is that there's always hope for you and for anyone else because nobody is too lost, too hard, or too far from God's grace. And what we're going to see from Paul's grace story is that there's always hope, first, even as we run from Christ, second, because we run into Christ, and third, there's hope, so we run for Christ. First, running from Christ. Our passage tells us that Paul ran from Christ, and the way he ran from Christ was by persecuting Christ's followers. And we find incredible hope as we consider this part of his story and look at who Paul used to be and why he so strongly opposed Christ. First, who was Paul? Paul is one of the greatest missionaries to have ever lived. The New Testament mentions uh, Paul more than any other Christian. He's also one of the most read authors in human history as he's written 13 letters uh, found in the New Testament. And as we get to know Paul throughout this year, we'll be convinced that he's one of the most remarkable followers Jesus has ever had. But Paul wasn't always this way. 
He was born into a wealthy family, and we know this because his family were Roman citizens. And his family was able to purchase Roman citizenship, uh, which their family had to do because they were wealthy. And we also know that just before his teenage years, Paul began his religious studies under one of the most revered spiritual leaders in his community. So Paul was wealthy, well-educated, and religiously privileged. But one of the most important things we know about Paul uh, before he became a Christian was that he was the church's worst enemy. So why did Paul so strongly oppose Christ? Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, Saul approved of his execution. This is Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Saul ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then chapter 9, verse 1 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them to Jerusalem. As the church was growing in Jerusalem, many Jews were being converted to Christianity. Revival was breaking out, and this infuriated the Jewish leaders. So they targeted and killed a Christian leader named Stephen, which we heard about a couple weeks ago. And our passage today finishes that story by telling us that Paul, this Jewish leader that the people placed Stephen's garments in front of as they killed him, approved of his murder. And this was the start of Paul's personal quest to destroy this new, growing Christian movement. In chapter 8, we see Paul entering house to house to drag Christians to prison and ravaging the church. The word ravage is the same word used to describe something like a wild beast ravaging vineyards. And in chapter 9, we see Paul breathing threats and murder against Jesus' followers. And again here, you're supposed to hear the sound of wild beasts snorting as they breathe. Paul has become a wild and ferocious beast determined to personally destroy this Christian movement. But Paul's quest to destroy Christians wasn't only personal. It was systematic. Because Paul sends a letter to the synagogues in Damascus, which was a a large Roman metropolis, and he asks for approval to systematically imprison all Christians. So Paul personally and systematically persecuted Christians because he despised the Christian message that Jesus was the Messiah who rose again from the dead. Paul was convinced that he was doing the right thing in opposing Christ and his followers. Much later in life, Paul writes to one of his disciples named Timothy, and he tells him in 1 Timothy 1.13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, he believed that Jesus was a false prophet, and because of it, he was blaspheming. And if Jesus was blaspheming, then all of Jesus' followers were blaspheming as well. And according to Jewish law, if you blasphemed, then you deserved death. So Paul opposed Christianity, and he persecuted Christians, and this was Paul's way of running from Christ. There's a number of reasons people run from Christ. 
All of us know people who are either apathetic or opposed to the gospel. You might have friends who aren't open to the gospel because of their religious background and upbringing. They grew up in Buddhist or Muslim or even atheistic homes, and they have an entire worldview that needs to be engaged with Scripture before they can even understand what Christianity claims. They need people who will run to them, or they'll continue running from Christ. You may know others who are closed to the gospel because of intellectual obstacles. They, they can't take the claims of Scripture uh, reliably and seriously. They can't uh, believe the claims that Jesus really was the Son of God, that he really rose again from the dead. And because of it, they run from Christ. There are others who are closed to the gospel because of politics and religion. Gen Zers are the most progressive generation yet. And so many of them, you might have friends who are turned off to Christianity because of so many churches and the religious right-wing politics. There are others who are close to Christianity because of racial injustice. Black Americans are one of the most Christian of any demographic in our country. But so many of our black friends have become frustrated and cynical of the gospel because of the church's silence on racial injustice. Others are close to the gospel because of their sexual lifestyle. Did you know that someone who's homosexual or bisexual is three times more likely to be an atheist or agnostic? And I wonder if they're close to Christianity, not because of the truth of Scripture, but because they've experienced judgment and condemnation instead of love from other Christians. And so they run from Christ as well. Whether it's scandals in the church or sufferings people experience or success and pleasures people chase after, Nova is filled with people running from Christ. At one point in your life, you were running from Christ as well. And your story probably includes unbelief, doubt, disobedience, and even opposition to Jesus. But Scripture tells us that even in our running from Christ, that there's hope. And our passage tells us there's hope because we experience, second, running into Christ. Our passage shows us a dramatic and powerful experience Paul had when he literally ran into Christ. I'm going to read a pretty lengthy passage here from verses 3 to 19 in chapter 9, so bear with me. Now, as he went on his way, Paul, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest, and, uh, chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Paul not only runs into Christ... Christ, he literally runs into Christ, right? And, and what we actually see is that Christ runs into him. And there's two ways Jesus runs into Paul and to all of us. And when this happens, we experience genuine Christian conversion. First, Jesus reveals. And second, Jesus renews. First, Jesus reveals. Our passage tells us that Jesus reveals himself to Paul by his sovereign and initiating mercy. At this point, it's been a few years since Jesus already resurrected and ascended to heaven, and the church was growing. And the Jewish leaders, including Paul, grew to hate this church. So Paul was on his way to arrest followers of Jesus, but Jesus shows up and he mercifully arrests Paul. Jesus physically appears before Paul. This wasn't a dream or a vision or a hallucination. This was what theologians call a Christophany, where the risen and resurrected Jesus shows up and he shows himself to Paul. And what Paul could see was a flashing light from heaven as he heard Jesus' voice. The, the light that Paul sees is an actual and the physical light of Jesus in all his heavenly glory. And the light is so bright, we read, that it blinded him. But the bright light is also a symbolic light. Paul was forced by the Savior's light to see the truth, to see his own spiritual blindness. The light he saw was the glory of Jesus, and the voice he heard was the voice of Jesus. Paul's mission in life was to live for what he thought was true and to destroy what he thought was a lie. But when he encounters Jesus, he discovers the very opposite. The risen Jesus wasn't a lie. But instead of condemning Paul, the risen Jesus, he shows Paul grace. And because of it, just like the Christians he was persecuting, Paul believed that Jesus was the risen Messiah. Just as Jesus revealed himself to Paul, Jesus, in his sovereign mercy, reveals himself to you. But Paul's story also shows us that second, Jesus renews. Not all of us are going to encounter divine lightning when we meet Jesus. Not many of us will audibly hear Jesus call out our names but all of us can and ought to experience a personal encounter with Jesus. And when we meet Jesus, Jesus first renews your heart. In our passage, we see Paul wanting to destroy Christians because of his utter hatred for Christ. 
But after his encounter with Jesus, he submits to Jesus and longs for fellowship with other believers. There was a change. What happened? What happened to Paul? The scales fell off. Look what Ananias prayed. He prayed that Paul would regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So for, for Paul to change, it must be that something happened deep in his heart. He was filled by the Holy Spirit who renewed his heart. The Bible calls this the gift of regeneration. And what this means is that your soul is made spiritually alive by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit means, as we heard about last week. Your soul goes from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. You go from spiritual death to spiritual life. You go from being lost to being found. And when that happens, where Jesus used to once be boring, he's now beautiful. Where the gospel used to once be irrelevant, it's now irresistible. Whereas fellowship with believers used to once be something you despised, you now call them friends and even family. How does this change happen? The Bible tells us that God does a good and special work in your heart. The Holy Spirit makes your soul come spiritually alive. And the resurrection, as believers, you'll get to one day experience physically, you get to experience now spiritually in your soul by the work of the Holy Spirit. Just like birth happens one time and you don't do anything to make that happen, spiritual birth, regeneration, is something that happens to you one time and you don't do anything to make that happen. Your scales fall off. So the first thing you experience when you meet Jesus is that he renews your heart. But second, when he renews your heart, you experience what we call conversion. A person experiences Christian conversion when they repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus as a response of his grace. Our, pas our passage doesn't mention Paul specifically repenting, but it does say that after three days of being blind and not eating, after his sight was restored, the first thing Paul did in verse 18 says that he was baptized. And in order to be baptized, Scripture tells us that you must first turn from your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. This was Paul's response to God's grace, and his life was completely changed. When Jesus shows up and makes his grace real to you, that's regeneration. And as a response, when you turn to God in repentance and faith, that's conversion. Regeneration is the root, and conversion is the fruit. Conversion begins with a gracious gift of new life that happens to you that produces repentance and faith. And what's important for all of us believers who experience regeneration and conversion is that this continues throughout your whole story as a Christian because you're going to continue to sin and continue to mess up, but as a follower of Jesus, you're going to continue to repent and turn to faith in Jesus. My um, own conversion moment happened when I was a second year at JMU. Any uh, Dukes in here? Go Dukes. Um, it was a Thursday night at a house party, and uh, everyone was getting drunk or high. Just another Thursday night for me. But this night was different. I looked around and remember feeling a chill 
down my spine because as I looked around, even though there were people laughing and drinking and having fun, I felt a chill down my spine because I felt like I was in a home full of dead bones. That was a crucial moment for me. That led to several weeks of somberly wondering and thinking about what my purpose in life was and, and how God fit in and all of that. And then one morning, before my 8 a.m. Uh, political science class in our, in our dorm, while all my sweet mates were asleep in their beds, uh, I was feeling spiritually weary and tired, and I grabbed my Bible, which I had to dust off because I hadn't written years, to look for an answer. And I randomly turned to the story of the two lost sons in the Gospel of Luke. And as I read the story, I was captivated by the father's love for his rebellious son because I felt like that son. And I got to the part where the younger son returns home as he practices and recites his apology and his offer to his dad to work for him as a servant. And as he walks home, what happens? His father is outside looking for him to see when his son would come back home. And when he sees his son, the dad shamelessly runs out. He embraces him. He kisses him. He tells him how much he's missed him and how much he loves him. And in that moment, I could feel God the Father embracing me and kissing me and telling me how much he's missed me and how much he's loved me. The gospel tells us that no matter how lost or how far you might be, because of Jesus, God the Son, what he did on our behalf, God the Father runs to us, embraces us, kisses us, and tells us how much he loves us. And that morning in my dorm room, grace became real, and my life has never been the same. Now, I'm not perfect. I still suck as a dad and as a husband. You can ask my wife, but that moment changed my life, and I've never been the same. And it's only by God's sovereign grace that instead of being in prison or dead, that I get to preach here this morning before you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you may have had a similar grace story. There was a powerful moment where Jesus revealed himself to you and he became not only real but irresistible and you were never the same. And that should encourage you that you are indeed alive in Christ and you have the hope of resurrection. Others of you, maybe many of you, don't have a powerful moment and that's perfectly fine. God not only works in powerful moments, he also works in gradual process. You may not be able to identify a point on a timeline where you experience conversion or regeneration, but gradually over time, you just believed the gospel. You might have grown up in the church or joined a CG and belonged to a group of other believers, and even though you can't point to one moment, you know that somewhere along your story, God revealed himself to you and gradually changed your heart and your life. As a dad, I pray this is what happens to my own children, that they just wake up one day and say to themselves, huh, I guess I'm a Christian. I love Jesus because the Bible says that Jesus 
loves me. So if you're a Christian, whether God revealed himself and renewed you in a powerful moment or gradual process, just as he did with Paul, Jesus showed up. He actually personally showed up in your life. And although it might not be spectacular, it's just as miraculous. Jesus ran to you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, he really does want to reveal himself to you and show you how much he loves you. And the clearest way he does that is through the Gospels. The Gospels of the New Testament record for us the history of Jesus, the same Jesus who showed up to Paul and asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The same Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. The same Jesus who came, who lived, who died on a cross for the sins of humanity, who who rose again from the dead. The same Jesus who more than 500 witnesses saw after he was raised from the dead. The same Jesus who promises to one day return and make all things new. It's this same Jesus who offers you the promise to forgive you of your sins, adopt you into his family, and grant you the hope of an eternal and resurrected life. If this is the Jesus you want to know and follow this morning, guess what? He's showing up to you today, and he invites you to turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus. Paul's grace story shows us that our ultimate hope is found when we run into Christ. And because we have this hope, we can give our lives to third and last running for Christ. Our passage tells us that after Paul encountered Jesus, he spent the rest of his life running for Christ. Read with me verses 19 through 22 of chapter 9. It says this, For some days Paul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. After Paul ran into Christ, he spent the rest of his life running for Christ. And I want to point out two words from Paul's story that's at the heart of his running for Christ. First, Christ. Paul proclaimed Christ. Verse 20 tells us that after Paul departed from Damascus, he went to the synagogues and proclaimed Jesus was the Son of God. In the Old Testament, this title, Son of God, pointed to the future Messiah, the perfect King, the Messiah, the Christ of God. And even though this is the only time this title is mentioned in the book of Acts, we know that this title was central to Paul's conversion and his call to ministry because out of his 13 letters, half of them refer to Jesus as the Son of God. The very reason Paul persecuted Christians uh, was because of who they claimed Christ to be. But when Paul met this risen Christ, he could not help but to run for Christ by proclaiming who Christ was. Jesus Christ was the Son of God who rose again from the dead. 
Second, proclaimed. Paul proclaimed Christ. And this is the point of Ananias' vision. The Lord told Ananias not to be afraid of Paul when Paul came to him because as Jesus tells Ananias in verse 15, Paul is to be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel, for I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The rest of Acts tells us how Paul would go on several missionary journeys, suffering significant hardships along the way. And in fact, as he did, Paul risked everything. He risked his safety. He risked his health. He risked his very life. But he would go on to become one of the greatest Christian missionaries to lead the church as Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. And at the end of his life, running for Paul was worth it for Paul. Running for Jesus was worth it all. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, one of Paul's last letters, actually his very last letter, he writes to his disciple as an old man, he writes this, as he also tells us, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul ran for Christ. The one who once was a church's greatest persecutor would now be the one who would willingly accept persecution for the sake of Jesus. How ironic, yet beautiful. Because I, I want to live like that as well. As followers of Jesus, our mission is to run for Jesus by proclaiming him with our words and with our deeds. Like Paul, we're to run for Christ. We're to live for Christ. And if and when God calls us, we're to die for Christ as well. Because at the end of our short and momentary lives, Jesus will be worth it. Jesus will be worth being discipled and making disciples. Jesus will be worth caring for the poor. Jesus will be worth protecting the oppressed. Jesus will be worth working with integrity. Jesus will be worth restoring what is broken around us. Jesus will be worth proclaiming Christ as our words and our deeds reflect what the new world will be like when Jesus returns and he makes all things right and all things new. This is such a great reminder and encouragement for me this morning and hopefully for many of you as I think about how our church and how we're dreaming and preparing to plant a daughter church. We're planting a daughter church because Jesus really is worth proclaiming Christ in more and more places to more and more people. We're planting a daughter church because Jesus really is worth the time and energy and resources to reach those who don't know Jesus. Jesus really is worth planting a daughter church because he's worth taking risks to be his witnesses. We're planting a daughter church because Jesus really is worth planting churches in Tysons, in Metro DC, in the United States, and even to the ends of the earth. In the months of September and October, we held interest meetings for the Tysons church plant. And at the interest meetings, we were able to dream and share and discuss what it might look like for us to plant a daughter church and why Tysons and Nova needs more gospel-centered Christ-proclaiming churches. And since the interest meetings, uh, my wife and I have been meeting individually and will continue to do so as well. Uh, people who attended the, the interest meetings getting to know them and to share our heart for the gospel, for people, and for Tysons. 
And starting next Sunday, next Sunday, on the last Sunday of every month from November through February, uh, we'll be uh, gathering at our home for what we're calling the Tyson's Vision Gathering. And at our vision gatherings, we're going to eat together, we're going to pray and worship together, we're going to dream and envision together of what it might look like for us to be the presence of Christ and proclaim Christ in the Tyson's area. And so whether you made it to our interest meetings or not, if you want to see what we're going to be about, I want to invite you to our first Tyson's vision gathering next Sunday after second service in our home. And for those who are cautious, don't worry, we'll be meeting in a cautious manner. This is open to everyone, so please invite anyone you think that might be interested. And to find out more details and to register, please go to the planning center. And you can find me outside today at the Welcome Center as well if you have any questions. Whether you're planting a church or you're still a student or working as a young professional, raising a family or an empty nester, Wherever you are in your story, God calls us to creatively, intentionally, proactively, persistently, sacrificially, perseveringly run for Christ. So Christ-central. Because Christ ran to you, let's spend our lives running for Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, help us know and believe and experience your deep love that runs after us day after day, even when we run from you. And would this love move us to live for you, to run for you, and even one day to die for you as well. For your name and the sake of your kingdom. Amen.